Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is an RNZ podcast. This afternoon in Wellington at 22 minutes past five, you saw an example of that, where the ultimate expression of that form of hate was that murder which was committed in the trades hall. Hi, I'm Jesse Mulligan. I'm host of the Daily Afternoons program on RNZ National. And you're listening to Crimes NZ. This is a series where I talk to people who are connected in some way or other with serious crimes that have happened in New Zealand. Now, in this one, I'm talking to Graham Clark, who was the secretary of the Wellington Trades Council during the time of the bombing of the Trades Hall in 1984, which killed Ernie Abbott. Um, I was um, Secretary of the Wellington District Council of the Federation of Labour and I was also Secretary of the Coach Workers Union in the days when we had a car industry the Coach Workers Union represented about half the people in it. Okay, and you had some other sort of uh, notable people around at the time the President of the Wellington Trades Council was a certain Pat Kelly that people might know. Yes, um, the day the bomb went off we had a meeting on the wall immediately opposite where the bomb had been placed and so a lot of the leadership of unions in the Wellington area were in that room all day. Um, the government had a wage and price freeze on but effectively it was only a wage freeze uh, and we were discussing how to break that wage freeze um, and if anyone had picked the bomb up during the day it would have taken out a lot of the leadership of the Wellington Union movement. And this was at the Wellington Trades Hall, as we mentioned. Do you retain connections to that hall? Yeah, I'm um, the president of Wellington Trades Hall, Inc., which is the owner of the building. So I'm retired now from full-time work, but I still hop down there and uh, help out. Hmm. What happens there mostly these days? Uh, there's some unions in there, and the rest of it's um, in the hands of tenants. Um, we're in the midst of creating a museum of working class and trade union history in the foyer, which will later, when we can afford it, extend into other areas of the building um, so that people can learn about the bombing and other um, trade union matters. And um, hopefully uh, the old saying is if you don't learn from history, you're condemned to repeat it. So we don't want to repeat those things. And so um, we're creating a museum so that people can learn about it. And by the way, this is off topic, but I have to ask, Graham, you must be thinking about the workers around New Zealand at the moment with all the uncertainty out there. Oh, indeed, indeed. Um, I think that the government's response has been a pretty good one, um, looking at what's happening internationally. Um, you know, they've um, done some good things on this particular issue. Take us back to that day then. Do you remember much about it? Yeah, well, we had a meeting of the Trades Council and um, we were busy printing off thousands of leaflets to distribute. 
So at the end of our meeting, um, Pat Kelly went up to our office and picked up all the leaflets that had been printed in the room immediately opposite where the bomb had been placed. So a lot of people had gone past it and seen it. Uh, and so Pat and I picked up the leaflets to go to the Trades Council meeting, which was being held in the Labour Party rooms in Willow Street. And uh, we walked past the bomb. I didn't see it, but Pat Kelly did. And he would have picked it up himself had he not had his arms full of the leaflets. So uh, the campaign to break the wage freeze saved his life and probably mine. Um, yeah, so we walked over to the meeting and uh, were getting ready for the meeting when the word came through that at 19 minutes past five, a bomb had gone off. And so we rushed back there to see what had happened. How far away were you from the, uh, from the site? Oh, about a kilometre. Okay. So you didn't, did you hear anything? No. No. Okay. What did you see when you got back? Um, police and uh, people standing outside wanting to know what had happened, people that knew people in the hall. Um, the news eventually came out that there was one dead person, so everyone thought it would be Pat Kelly, but, um, of course, he was with me and he turned up outside, <laughs> so they realised it wasn't him. And what was your sort of, um, I guess, emotional reaction um to the bomb at first, did you think, well, first of all, was it something that was at all on the radar for you, an attack like this? Um, it wasn't really on the radar for me. I mean, we didn't have those sorts of things in New Zealand, did we? And In fact, it was uncommon around the world, never mind New Zealand. Um, it's only recently become uh, far more common for these sorts of um, what are essentially terrorist events to occur. So... Mm. No, I wasn't expecting it, um, and um, it, it certainly, you have a reaction to it. It, it. it made us all far more cautious in, in going about our, our working lives. And now we have a clip from a unionist called Elf Kirk from a tribute film, which is called The Hatred Campaign. It was produced by Rod Prosser, and in this clip, Elf describes what went through his mind when he heard the bomb. I was just driving down Vivian Street at the time and the car shook. There was this cloud of smoke from Trades Hall. I never had any doubt it was a bomb. It was something I'd been expecting for so long. And reflecting on it afterwards, after we got over the feelings of shock and, and you know, personal loss, it was, I was trying to think, well, why was it? Why did I think it was so inevitable? Yeah, and why might he have thought it was inevitable. You mentioned that you weren't expecting anything like it, but Elf said it wasn't a huge shock to him. Is that because there was a lot of tension around the time, Graham? Well, this was um, the era of the Muldoon government. Uh, Muldoon was a populist, and um, one of the easy targets to bash were unions, and he did that from 1975, um, which he carried out to win the election and kept on bashing until he was um, turfed out of office in 1984. <laughs> Um, and part of the, the tension was caused by his wage price freeze. Um, prices, you could justify an increase, but you couldn't justify any increase for, wa any increase for wages. And so, um, obviously, there was a lot of tension as people didn't like having their living standards cut in what was then an era of high inflation. And presumably, as part of the union movement, you were agitating to, uh, to get those w wages to move. 
Well, we, we were agitating to try and break the wage freeze, so there were strikes in a number of industries. Um, and in Wellington, the, the pivotal one became strikes of cleaners, which was Pat Union, Pat Kelly's union. Um, and it was felt it was desirable to focus on low-paid workers who were the most vulnerable to price rises and for whom the freeze was unfairly sort of um, making their living circumstances extremely difficult. Yeah, so um, that, w- that was what was going on at the time. And by the way, if anyone thinks that Graham is exaggerating about the attacks that were taking place at the time, here's a clip from a National Party ad of the, uh, of the era. The following is a party political broadcast on behalf of the National Party. Tonight, industrial relations. Most trade unions are concerned with the welfare of their members, but some forget. Like the ones that have workers fired if they don't pay their dues. Or finance a political party which their members oppose. The people's flag is deepest red. If you belong to such a union, you may want to get out. But the law says you can't. Other unions are more militant. Like the little union that closed factory after factory and put all the workers out of work. Or the one that went on strike because they didn't want to make their beds anymore. Then there are the unions that are run by people who import class prejudice and industrial anarchy. They can close your business, take away your job, or bring down our shaky economy. And there's nothing you or the Labour government can do about it. Because the first thing the Labour government did was to change the law to make these things legal. Does that take you back, Graham? It does. Uh, a, a great reminis- uh, reminiscence. It would seem totally foreign, probably, to um, to most people listening today. Eh? I mean, there's still this this sort of familiar divide between left and right, and between national and labour. But that sort of really, really strong attacks on the union movement. I mean, was that common at the time? It was common at the time, and it's coming up again, because if you look at the National Party's um, election manifesto, they're talking about breaking the union monopoly in the state sector. They broke the union monopoly in um, the private sector in 1990, but the state sector unions remain quite strong, and they've even gone further than that. They want to discuss creating non-union forms of worker organisation. And the last people that did that were Mussolini and Hitler. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think we're in for a, a populist election campaign from the National Party. And some of what they're saying is very concerning. You know, we should all learn from history, and that's one of the reasons for learning about the trades hall bombing and what gave rise to it. Well, people will be impressed by uh, your passion all these years later, Graham, for the union movement. Meanwhile, at the time, um, there was also this famous ad um, showed a map of New Zealand turning red as the government threatens the communists and Labour will buy up the entire country. And then it finishes with what are now known as the famous Dancing Cossacks. In just seven years, they'll have enough money to buy every share in every public company in New Zealand. Soon, they could buy all the farms. Indeed, one day, the government could wind up owning literally everything. And you know what that's called, don't you? Vote national. Hmm. 
Okay, so well, that, that's that's typical of populism, isn't it? Because um, what they were talking about has now come to pass, and we have a KiwiSaver fund. It's lost quite a bit with the big, huge share slump, but it never managed to buy up the whole country. So what they were cam- campaigning about has actually happened, that we have this um, superannuation industry, and, and it's no way is it capable of buying everything. Uh, now, this is all before, of course, the big uh, changes in the 80s, uh, known as Rogernomics. But uh, David Longy, uh, well, at least a few years later, was around, and um, this is a bit of a taste of what he was up to at the time. Muldoon, famously, wouldn't comment on... Uh, oh no, let me take it back. So what did uh, the Prime Minister, Robert Muldoon, have to say about the bombing of the Trades Hall? Oh, I don't recall him saying anything. Nothing at all. He didn't refer to the uh, the first ever sort of active... Well, let's, let me say the first... Uh, the biggest act of terrorism of the 20th century in New Zealand. Uh, he didn't have anything to say about it? Not as far as I'm aware. I mean, I could be wrong, um, but I don't recall him actually saying anything about it at all. Yeah, we certainly don't have um, any... We had a we had a public um, funeral and thousands of people stopped work and came to the funeral, and I don't recall there being any message from the Prime Minister. Meanwhile, the leader of the opposition was David Longy. Here's a clip of him. This is thanks to Ngātāunga Sound and Vision. In New Zealand, we have certain problems. We have a society which has been conditioned into thinking that you are not masculine unless you're threatening a punch-up. You must, you see, always seem to be aggressive. And you need to confront, because that's the style that we've been told is the appropriate one. You can get an awful escalation of that because sometimes people take calculated pursuit of hate, literally. This afternoon in Wellington at 22 minutes past five, you saw an example of that, where the ultimate expression of that form of hate was that murder which was committed in the Trades Hall. There wouldn't be any responsible person in New Zealand of any political complexion that would regard that as in any way excusable or to seek to find some absurd explanation for it, and I do not. But what I say is that we ought not to be, as a nation, over-surprised that that type of escalation of hate has occurred. See, that's actually quite incredible. I haven't heard that clip before. And um, it's really interesting him connecting a line between the New Zealand view of masculinity and a violent terrorist act. I mean, that's really, I, I think, ahead of its time. To hear him talking about that. Yeah, yeah, I'd not, I'd not uh, heard that before either, and um, it is quite a, a as long as he was apt to do a, a, a great statement. Do you recall the funeral for? And by the way, if you've just tuned in, I'm talking to Graham Clark, who was uh, on the scene at the Trades Hall bombing in 1984 uh, and killed one 64 year old Ernie Abbott. Do you recall Ernie's funeral, Graham? I do. Yes, I had. I was a pallbearer, and um, I had to read the telegrams of um, of uh, sympathy, uh, which is why I don't remember one from the Prime Minister. Mm. How big was the funeral? You said it, you said it was pretty big. Um, it was too large to fit in the old Wellington Town Hall. And after the funeral, the, um, 
the hearse and the procession went and walked past the trade hall uh, with the coffin and the hearse. And that, at, at trade hall, that's where the, the funeral ended. We also have a clip uh, from the funeral, and this is Pat Kelly addressing those gathered. Um, you might, when you listen to this clip, hear the sound change from inside the massive hall to the loud hailer, which is carrying the speeches to those outside who couldn't fit in. And to those people who have, over this last 10 or so years in New Zealand, engaged in dividing the nation, have engaged in bashing the trade unions, who organised large marches in Auckland on the basis of hate unions, who have consistently and constantly, since the 70s, put forward this vitriolic line of hatred. And I say to them that you will now need to reflect, is this what you sought to achieve? Because if you did, you have been successful but successful in striking down an ordinary working man, an act of trade union certainly, but striking down a man that was going about his ordinary work. That's Pat Kelly speaking at the funeral uh, 36 years ago after the Trades Hall bombing. What was the feeling at the time, Graham, of, of who the target of this bomb was or, or what the target was? Well, there was a whole variety of different um, uh, speculations on the motive. Um, there'd been a strike of the tramways union the day or two days before, and um, I always felt that, that given that the bomb was placed at the end of the hall where um, the tramways union officers were, that it was perhaps directed at them. But um, since then, we've sort of discovered that the bomb was extremely complex and required a high level of skill to make, and it would have had to have been made over a long time frame than the night uh, the night of a strike had occurred. So someone had been working on it for quite a while? Someone had been working on it for um, longer than a couple of days, yeah. And tell me about the police investigation. Um, well, we were um, shut out of the trades hall for um, many weeks, and they did a forensic um, examination. They didn't tell us too much. Um, I learned, for example, that the switching device was a mercury switch and that very few people knew how to make it, but that was never put out in the public. And other items that weren't put in the public uh, were that a lot of accelerant was placed in the, in the bomb to try and make the trades all burn. Um, it couldn't burn. Unfortunately, we've had, had to spend 75000 on a uh, fire alarm system for something that, that won't happen to the building because we've already had the experience. Um, and it was packed with um, pages from the Evening Post, and they actually managed to identify which particular issues of the Evening Post had packed the bomb. Uh, and it was odd because they were seven years old, the issues, uh, the issue of the paper. Wow. Um, and um, I understand that they actually conducted a raid on one of the suspects because the suspect pool was pretty limited, uh, people having the knowledge to make that kind of bomb with that kind of switch. And um, they did a raid and found, at the time, um, he had the newspapers, 
and he had the pages missing that were in the bomb. Uh, but they chose not to arrest him. I guess he may not have been the person that placed the bomb. Um, he may have had a defence. Uh, who knows? But to me, I would have thought if he'd been arrested at the time and his identity um, was tested against witnesses, um, that someone may have actually seen him. Because uh, a lot of people worked in the trades hall at that time, and I know that various um, people who worked there were um, asked by the police to, to um, assist with identical pictures of people that they'd seen that they didn't know in the hall. Um, and with a bit of um, more effort, I think that, that possibly, um, instead of waiting all this time to make that information known, if it had been made known at the time, uh, they may have been more successful in, in arresting someone and getting a conviction. There can't have been many people in New Zealand who would know how to create a bomb like that. No, no, and the police could identify pretty well the, the, the people who they were. They would have perhaps been in mining. Um, and, yeah, but the, the, the numbers were limited. I understand they had three principal suspects um, and they weren't sure which one it was, but I would have thought that when one of the suspects' house, houses was raided and the newspaper that was in the bomb uh, was that seven-year-old edition of the newspaper was in the home and the pages were missing, I would have thought that that was possibly uh, something to go on. So what's your theory as to why they didn't proceed with uh, that particular suspect? Um, I think you know, there's possibly a defence. Um, the person concerned may have had, had some unwitting involvement. It may have been someone else. It's always possible to construct the idea that there might be a defence. Um, so you can't say without a, a trial that a person is um, guilty, but um, I would have thought that um, if that information had have been made known, of what they actually had, uh, that they might have got some more, um, something more back. Um, I was told recently of um, the place where the likely components of the bomb would have been purchased, and had um, that been known, um, then the people in the in the place where the components were purchased may have been able, able to identify who they sold them to. Who was the target, Graham? Um, I think the target was just in general the trade union movement. I don't think there was a specific target. And, and was the bomb set to go off whenever someone, whoever it was, picked the suitcase up? It was designed to kill. Because if you picked it up, you were going to get blown away. And if you happened to be in a crowd of people when you picked it up, it would have taken them all. And it's just speculation, but why might someone have felt so strongly or, or been motivated to do this crime? Um, well, in a, a climate of, um, of populism, um, and it, it's very easy to stoke prejudice, and people's prejudice gives rise to grievance if someone... Uh, for example, got made redundant, they might blame a union because they lost their job, did the union ask for too much money, all that kind of thing. And, and if you encourage that kind of way of thinking about things, um, 
someone who has the ability and the lack of um, uh, moral scruples uh, may decide because they can to take another step. Quite incredible, as you say, to think of it happening in New Zealand, particularly sleepy New Zealand of the 1980s. I've got a message here I thought you might enjoy. Um, it says, Ernie was a kind, friendly Englishman with a ready sense of humour and twinkling eyes. Every morning when I got to work, he would welcome me warmly and try to carry my handbag for me, his kindly sense of humour to a young woman. He was a lovely man who should never have been harmed. And that comes from Sue, who worked for the Printers' Union when she was just 18. We haven't talked much about him as a person, but how do you remember him? Um, I, I remember him as a bit more of a stirrer, actually. Because, um, <laughs> Fair enough. He was, the, he was the caretaker and cleaner, so he was always around. He had a flat on the top level of the building. And I would arrive at our office at, a, at about um, 8 o'clock, and our office was full of POMs at that stage. I'm a Kiwi, but we had a lot of POMs in the office. And by about quarter past eight, um, he had them all erupting in open warfare with each other, arguing and screaming and shouting at each other. Um, so he could manage to stir up a good argument. And, of course, at his funeral, um, Jimmy Milne from the Watersiders Union said he was a good union delegate because he'd been a warfie. And uh, to be a good union delegate, you've got to be a bit of a stirrer. You've followed this um, story, obviously, over the years. How frustrated have you been that uh, police haven't managed to make an arrest, that no one's been charged? Um, it, it doesn't particularly frustrate me, apart from the point of view of justice. You know, you like to see justice done. But I think it, it's a story that um, warns against um, populism and... You know, I just look at this next coming election and see Facebook and um, prejudices being stroked a la Donald Trump, and I do have a concern. And that's why I want people to learn about our history and to learn from it so that we don't repeat it. That if someone has a, a dangerous idea and it's um, stoked or encouraged by someone with uh, a mouthpiece and with a public profile that that dangerous idea can turn into something even more dangerous. Yeah, yeah. If it captures people's minds, once you've captured people's minds, um, it becomes a material force and it can, can change um, society. And so, you know, people like Donald Trump are dangerous and I don't want to see one in New Zealand. And so, from what you know of the case and what you've learned over the last few years, can you um, carefully tell us what you think happens on that day and who was responsible? Maybe, you know, you don't need to name them, but you can you can tell us as much as you're comfortable telling us. Well, I, I think that um, what happened on the day was that someone came in and um, planted the bomb early in the morning, um, and they had a grudge against the trade union movement because they'd been made redundant perhaps or um, and, and had listened to the sorts of stuff that you ran earlier from um, the um, various election policies of the Muldoon government. Um, uh, there, there is a guy who the police have identified had the newspaper that was used to pack the bomb um, and the pages that um, used to stuff the, and pat out the bomb were missing from those pages. Um, it's a, a, a probability, in my view, that he had something to do with the making of the bomb, 
he may not have been the person that planted it. He may not have even known what it was going to be used for. Um, so, who knows? Um, yeah, that's that's all I'd say. And do you think there will ever be an arrest or any more news on this case? Um, the only news that would be forthcoming, which I would have thought would have surfaced by now, would be if they'd managed to recover DNA. I understand that they held the theory that uh, because the bomb was picked up by the handle and the person who delivered it delivered it by the handle, um, that it may have had DNA on it that could have been recovered, that it wouldn't have been burnt um, at the time. Um, but if there's no DNA survived, and frankly I think that that's a, pretty much a long shot, then I think it'll be um, case unsolved. You've been listening to Crimes NZ, and I'm Jesse Mulligan. There are more episodes of this series on the RNZ podcast page or on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And if you like this series, try White Silence. It's another award-winning RNZ podcast series. You can find it on the RNZ podcast page.